So we've been talking about How to Neighbor, which is the um, packaging for this series. And, and here's the thing about this where it can go a little bit off the rails is sometimes neighboring the way that we've been talking about it, like moving toward your actual neighbor, can be a nightmare. Because neighbors are really difficult. Like people in general are really difficult in your home and then flowing outside of your home. Like it can be difficult. It can be messy. Um, A few years ago, we lived in a townhouse community. We actually moved about a year ago. And there was this one guy, this is about seven years ago when we first moved in, this one guy that um, I'm generally pretty easy to get along with and and I like people. But I I got to a point where I, I couldn't stand this guy. Um, He was the kind of homeowners association Nazi, if you know what I'm talking about. So like all he had to do all day is just roam around the neighborhood to catch every infraction. And I'm OCD tendencies, and so I like things in order. I mean, it was ridiculous. So there was a little pink swing that we put in our tree out front, and apparently that was a violation. Um, there was all kind of these other crazy things. He would sit in his, his townhouse, and it would overlook the pool area, and he would just do reconnaissance on the pool all day long, like, are the chairs lined up? And and then you would get all these different notes, and he would take a survey of who's coming and going from the pool, and should they have a key or not. And I mean, it just was out of control. And then the final straw was one night, my father-in-law was visiting us. We had church the next day. It was a Saturday night. And um, his car got towed for no reason whatsoever. And I mean, I was thankful it was my father-in-law's car, but it, like got towed for no reason. And I'm telling you, that was the final straw where like, I'm generally pretty chill, pretty easy going. I'm like, I want to kill this guy. Like, I want to kill him. And he's the one, one of the few guys that he's about my size, and he's two decades older, so, like, I could actually take him. But I, and I thought about it, but, like, you know, I, the, the articles in the paper wouldn't look very good, and it wouldn't reflect well on you. But, it, like, he was just out of control. Like, it was very difficult, and I had a lot of trouble with this guy. And it can just be hard sometimes. So last week, we looked at the one account in Luke 10. Luke writes about it where Jesus is approached by a lawyer, and he gets this question, like, how do I find eternal life? Or really, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to live an extraordinary life? There's really several layers to his question. And Jesus um, just responds with the famous words that most of us know that are the heartbeat of the series. You just need to love God, and you need to love your neighbor. And immediately, the guy did what we do, and it's like, um, could, you, could you clarify that? Could you, like, narrow that down? Because that's, that's huge, that's broad, that's, okay, nobody can do all of that. And the question the lawyer actually asked where Jesus responded with this was, um, who's my neighbor? But what really he meant was, who's not my neighbor? Like, how far do I have to go with this? Like, I'm probably, like most of us, batting three out of ten with the Ten Commandments. Is that the same, like, standard with my neighbors? Because I can't, I mean, I can't engage with all of them. And so, like, how far do I have to go? Who can I check off the list? How can I do this and not be uncomfortable or not have to talk to them? I mean, his whole goal was, um, like, who do I not have to engage with? And if you were to be really, really honest, there's some of that in us that as we start to talk about this, there's almost this eternal, internal, internal thing that rises up where we kind of want to think, okay, we all want to define who's not our neighbor. We all want to define kind of the uncomfortable people. So whether it's your boss, whether it is an actual neighbor three doors down, whether it is um, a coach, whether it's a professor, whether it's the freaking crazy dance mom and like, okay, do I have to move in that direction? Like, I'll pray for her. 
She needs prayer and Prozac. I don't know if I can do any, any more than that. Like, but we all want to define, okay, like, who's not the person um, that I have to interact with? So one day Jesus clarifies this whole thing we've been talking about even further. And he says this in Matthew 5, 43 of, okay, this is what I mean. This is how radical this is. And he says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. And the reason Jesus said you've heard it said is because they had heard it said. This is actually a quote from a Greek writer in the first century. And what, what's really interesting is in the West today, our idea of forgiveness did not exist in Greek and Roman cultures. And so this really was a thing where like, yeah, we have it on pillows and blankets in our house. Um, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Everybody knows that because before Jesus, that's how everybody operated. And so Jesus changes the game and says, this is how far this goes. And he says this in verse 44, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus at the end of his life is like, okay, this is what I mean by it's a new command. I want you to love me by loving other people around you. And this is how extreme it is. This is why it's new. It didn't exist in the first century. And what's crazy about this is this is unbelievably proactive. He's like, I want you to love. It's a verb. I want you to move in the direction of your enemies, and I want you to love them. This is not, hey, don't do harm to them, or somehow just kind of back away or don't have any interaction. Instead, Jesus says, no, no, no. I want you to pursue. I want you to love. I want you to pray for. I want you to do something extraordinarily proactive in, in, in regard to and in terms of the relationships that you don't want anything to do with. Like, isn't it true, like, when we start to think about, okay, Jesus, I want to follow you into this, what we've been talking about for a few weeks, that almost immediately that person or those persons rise to the forefront of your mind, and you're like, not them, right? It's why, it's why when we answer this question, what does loving our neighbor really demand? It's why Jesus, to all of us, says the, the guy, the girl, that, that group that, that you kind of, it comes to the forefront and you want to do this but not be uncomfortable with them or not move in their direction, that's actually where I want you to start. All the, the individuals where you want to move in the other direction, that's actually where I want you to begin. I want you to love your enemies, and maybe it's not even your enemies, maybe, again, it's just the uncomfortable people. It's just the people that you don't generally, you don't generally want to move in their direction. It's the it's the house down the street, and it's just, everything's run down. If you were to be a little honest, there's some judgmental thoughts in your mind of like, just get it together. Just get your stuff together. It's the, the couple that you've never talked to, but um, and maybe you know this. There's just enough evidence of their dysfunction and baggage to know there's a lot of chaos there, and I do not want to enter into that chaos. I'm not a drama person. There's the family where they've got the kids and there's constantly this tension of your kids and their kids and you want to be wise, but they don't hold any of the values that you hold. And so there's just kind of some things you're wrestling with. Or, or maybe it's the, it's the family or the couple that lives a couple of doors down and they're flying the rainbow flag loud and proud. And they've got an impeach whoever sign in their flower bed. And if you were to be honest, they kind of make you angry. Because they threaten what you value, and you want to honor Jesus. And so Jesus says, listen, what I'm talking about of love me by loving your neighbor as you understand my love for you, as we've said for three weeks now, it is simple, but it is not easy to do. It will take you way beyond Sunday school Christianity, where it was all about vertical and checking a few boxes off, and then you can ignore people to your right and left. And Jesus says, no more. In fact... 
This was Jesus' entire ministry on earth. This is all Jesus did. In fact, this is, this is how Jesus applied this. Jesus spent his entire life seeking out the people we spend our entire life trying to avoid. See, this is one of the big angsts I have toward the church. And I love the church. The church is referred to as the bride of Christ in the New Testament. But in many cases, our churches do not look like Jesus. Our churches do not attract the same people that Jesus attracted. Uh, Jesus, over and over again, he had VIP sections at the front rows of his crowds of thousands. And they were made up of the outside or whatever that looked like. They were made up of the outcasts. They were made up of literally people who were enemies of Christianity and enemies of the way, or they, they were just made up of the, in culture, the uncomfortable people. But over and over again, throughout Jesus' ministry, all of these people were attracted to him, loved being around him, loved hanging with them, and Jesus liked them, and Jesus liked being around them. And here's the thing, the church, and you probably already know, the church is the body of Christ. Which means that whatever was true of Jesus personally should be true of us corporately. That we should attract the same people. We should have the same kind of influence. People should want to be around us who are in those categories. We, we should reflect in some way the life and the ministry of Jesus because what he did personally is what ultimately we should be about corporately. And the reason we're not and the reason our churches don't look like this and the reason there's not the same kind of audiences in many cases is because we're not doing it in our communities. And Jesus says to all of us, as uncomfortable and as uneasy as it is, and as much as it moves you out of your categories, I want you to follow me. I want you to follow me into this. And so Jesus illustrates this in a fantastic way. In one incident where there was some people around, as often was the case, and Jesus was making a very specific point, and Mark records it and writes about this account where Jesus, again, just puts this on full display. And this is right at really the beginning of Jesus' ministry. At this point, he is incredibly popular. He's bringing hype wherever he goes. There is crowds of thousands of people, and he's just recruited Peter, Andrew, James, John. He's just getting this rolling, and really, part of what he's doing at this point in his ministry to go, hey, you guys have no idea, but I'm about to uh, model for you and put on display what is, it is going to mean to follow me and what I'm really all about. And so Mark records this particular interaction in Mark 2, verse 13, and if you've got your app, you can go to media and sermon resources. But here's um, how Mark writes about this particular event. He says, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake and a large crowd came to him and he began to teach. And as he walked along, he saw Matthew, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. And many of you know this story, but I, I just, I always want to pause and try to move this into our cultural context. Uh, in our minds, this is Jesus is moving up on this guy, and he's kind of the equivalent of he's trying to hide the bong real quick um, as Jesus approaches. Like, whatever you can identify with is, okay, he's, I, I don't know, that's who Matthew was. Like, Matthew was a tax collector, which doesn't mean a lot to us, but in first century um, among Jewish people, it was a big deal because it means he worked for Rome. Rome was the occupying force. Rome was the oppressors. And so he worked for Rome to collect taxes among his other Jewish peers. And he could charge whatever he wanted as long as Rome got their cut. And so many times um, they would have massive margins on their tax collecting. And so he was hated, Matthew was, by other Jewish people. He was ripping them off and he was helping Rome and they hated Rome. 
And so they did not like Matthew. And so Jesus comes to the shore and he comes up to Matthew and he could have said anything. And, and you probably know how this goes down. I mean, he could have rolled up on Matthew to go, hey, I can't believe you are supporting Rome and you have no idea what they're going to do to me in a couple years. Like, I, I can't believe that, that your values are so messed up. Are you serious? And Jesus comes to Matthew, verse 14, follow me, just follow me. And there in the crowd is an audible, and Peter, because Peter's always the guy, Peter's got to be thinking, what, what, what are you doing? And Jesus says to Matthew, the tax collector, the, we don't want to spend time with this guy. He says to Matthew, follow me. And Matthew got up and just followed him. And again, everybody in the crowd, his disciples are going, okay, you can't just follow him. And Jesus, all due respect, you can't just ask him to follow you. And there needs to be some kind of onboarding process. There needs to be, we run over the core values of what it's going to mean to be a part of this group. We need to go over standards of conduct. We need to make sure that he leaves the bong there and he leaves his lifestyle behind. And he never goes back again before he just comes and follows you. Can I, can I just say this if you're watching online or maybe you listen to this somewhere and you're still investigating, you're not a Jesus follower, you're trying to figure this whole thing out. This is so huge, and I think in, in some places we've lost sight of this, but you can take the first step to follow Jesus before you ever believe. You can take the first step to follow Jesus before you ever believe, meaning you can begin to read the scriptures even if you don't believe it. You don't read anything because you believe it. You can just start reading. You, you can gather with us every single weekend, and you can argue in your mind, and you can find somebody to ask questions to, and you can investigate, and you can get into a community group, and you can just hang around other Jesus followers, and you can begin to see whether this is really true or, or if it isn't. You can begin to consider all of the claims of Jesus, and you don't have to do anything. You don't have to set anything down. You don't have to change any behavior. You can belong here before you ever believe, as we say often, and you can begin to take the first step before you ever believe. In fact, that's how it always starts. Like what's really interesting about Jesus followers, the many who left their nets and started following and left the tax collector's booth, there was many of them who didn't even really believe in Jesus until after the resurrection, meaning they spent three years hanging out with this guy. And it wasn't until after he came back from the dead, they're like, you are the son of God. Like, turning water into wine was legit, but this seals the deal. We are going to follow you. But it took three years. So I just want to tell you, begin to investigate, begin to consider before you ever believe. And so Jesus says, Matthew, come follow me. And everybody in the crowd's thinking, it's oversimplified. This is way uncomfortable, but it gets worse. There, verse 15, and G while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, and they're like, you got to be kidding me. You have got to be kidding me. Like, we, we can't go to his house. And Jesus, by the way, if you are seen at his house having a meal with Matthew and all of Matthew's friends, because it's not just Matthew, you know there's a larger group coming with him and it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to ruin our testimony. People are going to wonder what we're doing. This is way outside of the bounds of, it just isn't appropriate, it isn't right. And can I just say this one other thing before we move on that is so important for us as individual Christians and as a church? Jesus was never, ever concerned about guilt by association. Ever. Like, let me just ask you this question. When was the last time you found yourself in a place where you were a little bit misunderstood? And people didn't really understand what you were doing. And they didn't know why you were hanging with them. And they didn't know why you were going there. 
And I'm not saying be unwise, but I'm saying when was the last time we moved out in the direction of people where we were misunderstood by some other people around us? And, and we're going to be appropriate. And we're not going to go into places where it's going to play on maybe some things that we struggle with or some addictions we've had in the past. And I mean, whatever that is, like just to give you an example, like if I'm going somewhere and, and having a drink, I, I'm never going to have more than one or two because I never want to even get close to that line. I want to make sure that I'm never controlled with anything and I'm controlled with the Holy Spirit. So that's a big deal to me. And Jesus would go into environments and he would never change who he was. He would never change what he believed. He would never compromise who he was, but he would move in the direction of people that nobody else was uncomfortable with. So he says to his guys, listen, we're gonna go have dinner at Matthew's house because I don't have a house. So it's gonna have to be in Matthew's living room at his table, but we're gonna go and I'm gonna be misunderstood. And people are not going to really get what's going on. It's going to hurt my reputation. And I'm totally okay with that. Like, can I just say this and i got to move on. I, I almost, I want this. Like, I want this to be said of my life. I want people to be confused about me a little bit. I would love for people to be a little bit confused about our church. Not because we change anything. Not because we compromise anything. We are all about Jesus. But I'm telling you, when you are all about Jesus, it is going to lead you into some seedy places. It's going to move you to places where you're with uncomfortable people. There's others that are not going to understand that. And they're going to think from the outside because they're not there that maybe you're compromising something. And I just think if that happens, we're getting closer to what it looks like to follow Jesus. And then he just keeps going, verse 15. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, I love this, many tax collectors and sinners, like many of them, lots of them, they're filling Matthew's house. And I, I, this always cracks me up that there's two categories. There's sinners, and then if you're a tax collector, you need your own box. Like, we don't want to be associated with you. Tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. And everybody's going, too far, too far. Jesus, I think Solomon said something like, bad company corrupts good character. We could go to the temple and probably find the manuscript. You, you can't be doing this. For there were many, <laughs> so uncomfortable, who followed him. So, so whatever you want to put into that box, I don't know what the cultural context is, but it's, it, there he is at the table and all the potheads are there. And there's probably a stripper somewhere and there's, there's a porn addict and there's a thug and there's somebody who's got some shady business dealings and just people are so uncomfortable with. And there Jesus is at the table and he looks kind of comfortable. Like, could, could, has that ever been said of us? Like, here's the really interesting thing is, I think we've almost taken the whole, if we can get the verse up here again, the whole sinners and tax collectors things to another level, because in our culture, specifically in the West, we've made sinners even something that's beyond what Jesus meant, where it's just anybody who disagrees with us. So for a lot of us, it's the tax collectors and the Republicans. It's the tax collectors and the Democrats. It's the tax collectors and anybody who doesn't agree with our view of immigration reform. It is the tax collectors and those other people and their view of gun control or whatever. It is. It's the tax collectors and the people with that kind of lifestyle. And there Jesus is. And it's so interesting because Jesus was always chill. He was always comfortable with the people who were nothing like him, who didn't believe what he believed, who didn't vote the way he voted, 
who didn't hold the same worldview that he held. And there he was in the midst of them. And not only that, he sought them out. Like he moved in their direction. And they loved being around him. And Jesus loved being around them. And we are the physical representation of Jesus. Like, can I just ask you this question? Why, why are we not moved to move in the direction of people who are nothing like us? Why are they not moved to want to be in our presence? Does anybody outside of white evangelical Christians like to hang around you? Like, why are we not moved into a place where this could be said about us? And so Jesus is putting on display everything we've talked about in this series of, hey, what it means to follow me is about to change because my movement is no longer about what happens in the temple. It's about what happens around the table. My movement is no longer about this vertical version of religion where it's about what you read and what you prayed and what you attended. And you can do all of that, pat yourself on the back and ignore the guy who's across the table or ignore the guy who's across the street. And Jesus is going, no more, no more, no more. That for now on, the measure of your love for God, not salvation, is going to be measured by what happens around the table, not just what happens in the temple, that your love for God is going to be authenticated by your love for other people, specifically people who are nothing like you. In fact, that's where the scandalous, reckless love of Jesus is most powerfully put on display. Can I, can I just say this? If you're not a Jesus follower, and man, we are not perfect, and you're, you're listening to somebody who is just so short of any standard of perfection perfection and our churches are messed up but I, I love the body of Christ I love the church locally and globally but if I can just speak honestly on our behalf if you've been around us and you have felt anything but loved and accepted that's on us and you just need to know if Jesus showed up here today physically I don't care where you're coming from or what your past looks like Jesus would like you and Jesus would be making dinner plans to go to your house and Jesus would not be uncomfortable even though he knows every single thought that you have. And so, verse 16, when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples. Now, just real quick pause, get this picture. The Pharisees are not invited to the party. The Pharisees are outside. So how they communicated with Jesus, I don't know. Apparently, they're looking in the window somewhere. Hey, James, come here. And James comes outside, and the disciples have a question for him. And at this point, it kind of starts to unearth some weird tendencies on the Pharisees' part. Because the Pharisees are the same guys who caught the woman in adultery, if you know that story. And I don't need to go into details, but that took a high-level reconnaissance work of catching the woman in adultery. And now here they are. They're not invited into the party, but they realize there is a party, and they're wondering why Jesus is with the sinners. So some kind of voyeuristic tendencies are starting to come to the surface for the Pharisees. So there they are, and they're like, hey, hey, James, can you come here for a second? And so James comes. He's like, hey, why is he doing this? Why, why is he in there eating with the, the, the sinners and the tax collectors because they're, they're nothing like him. In fact, we're more like him, which was actually true. And our theology almost perfectly lines up with him, which was actually true. And so what, why are we not invited to the dinner feast? Why, why would he choose these guys? 
And so James, or whoever it was, goes back in, and the music's pumping, and it's probably loud in there and a little raucous, and the Pharisees are outside, and the message gets back to Jesus, verse 17, and on hearing their question, he says, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor. And I just imagine, I don't know if this is true, they weren't sitting in chairs, but just go with me. They were reclining at a table. I imagine he's probably got his arm around Matthew and James comes in to say, hey, the Pharisees are outside. They've been looking through the window and they're wondering what's going on and why you're in here and why all these other guys are in here. And they just, they're confused. And Jesus says, well, go back out and tell them, hey, it is not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick people. And Matthew has got to be thinking, Jesus, you're a guest in my house. You're sitting at my table, and you're pointing to me, telling me I'm sick. And Jesus, I'm guessing, this is where I just make stuff up, but it has to be turning his direction, going, Matthew, you're a tax collector. And Matthew's like, you're right, you're right, I'm a tax collector. Like, I, I've got no footing to stand on. Jesus is like, well, Matthew, you know you're sick. You know you're broken. Matthew, you don't even live up to your own legit standards for your life. And Jesus says to us, listen, you, I don't care what your status is. I don't care how much money you make. I don't care what your background is. I don't even care what your church experience has been like. You know you're sick. You know you're busted up. You might beat the guy three doors down from you in a moral sprint, but you know that there is something not right in you, that you don't even live up to your own standards for you. And Jesus is like, Matthew, this is why I came, man. And then, by the way, I'm imagining this, but Jesus sending James back out. Hey, tell them this as well. Tell the Pharisees, because there's some things that they don't understand in their mind. Tell the Pharisees that there really is just, if they want to create categories, Jesus who has come to be the great healer, and there's everybody else who needs healing. And so they may see this as different. They may see behavioral changes and behavioral scales, but I just see the heart. And actually, the Pharisees who are sitting on the outside with their faces plastered to the window and all of the strippers and hookers and thugs who are sitting at this table, they are all on an equal plane. They are in need of the healing of Jesus and they have a heart issue that can only be reconciled by me. We're all on an equal plane. And just last thing I just thought of. This is the obstacle to empathy, by the way. Because the moment we move to a place, and this is all about last week's talk that you can go back and listen to, but the moment we get to a place where we forget and we have not encountered Jesus' reckless love in a way that is continually moving us and drawing us to a place of humility to understand, yeah, my behavior may look different at this season in my life, but my heart doesn't without Jesus. And there is nobody that I am better than. And it moves you to tables that you wouldn't otherwise interact with and you wouldn't otherwise sit at because you understand we really are at an equal plane at the cross and we need Jesus. And that'll move me toward anybody because I understand how far gone I am without him. And then he ends this way and kind of gives a final right hook. And Matthew actually records this. Mark doesn't have it in his account. Matthew's there and he has this perspective and says, but Jesus said at the end of this kind of whole interaction to the Pharisees, but, but go and learn. Oh, I'm not done. James, tell him one more thing. I know you've come back and forth three times. Tell him one more thing out there. Tell him to go and learn, which was so offensive. These are 1,400 on the SATs. All they ever did was learn, memorize the Torah. Jesus said, go, go tell him to go and learn. And then he quotes the prophet Hosea, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. 
For I have not, listen in, if, whatever your background is, not a Jesus follower, you've been in church all your life, just, just lean in for a second. I have not, Jesus, come to call the righteous. I have not come to call people who think they are righteous, but sinners. And Jesus is going, I am not content to just hang out in the temple with all the people who believe like me and see the world like me because this is about what happens around the table. Like, I am not content, and no longer is it going to be about you bringing a sacrifice to the temple and feeling like you are okay with God, whatever that sacrifice entails, and then ignoring people around the table. And come on, church. Come on, Jesus followers, followers of Jesus, the physical representation of Jesus who is no longer here. The moment we move to a place where we are just content to spend most of our time with people who believe like us and people who vote like us and people who see the world like us is the moment where we will stand outside of the rooms where Jesus is calling the sick and the sinners in our generation. And we will miss our purpose. We will miss our divine calling. We will miss what God might have done. And I think we will perpetuate a generation who is bored with their faith because we have been called to participate in what God is doing in the world. And this is the essence of it. This is the heart of it. This is what Jesus meant when Jesus said, I want you to follow me. I want you to participate with my story in the world as I connect your story to it. And you move out to those who are around you to show the grace and the love of Jesus. Leave your lane sacrifices at home. All of that's been done away with. I want you to love me as you understand my love for you, and I want you to move in the direction of people that otherwise you would never, ever move in the direction of because I've created you for this. And the moment it gets uncomfortable, and the moment you want to retreat, and the moment you create, like we all do, all of your excuses for why you can move in the other direction, Jesus just says, I want you to follow me. And by the way, by the way, when it gets tough, I have not come to planet Earth, and I have not left you on planet Earth to call the righteous people. I've called you to call sinners. And by the way, that's really good news for you too. So, so can I just ask you this question? Do you have any deep meaningful relationships. Let me say those words again. Do you have any deep, meaningful, this is not your friends on Facebook, do you have any deep, meaningful relationships with people who are nothing like you? Are, are, are you at, at any level moved in the direction of people who just, they don't see the world the way you do, they make you a little uncomfortable, there's things that you just can't kind of reconcile? Is there anything like that, any relationships like that that, that can be characterized in your life? Because Jesus spent his entire life seeking out the people that we spent our entire life trying to avoid. So let me just ask you a couple questions. Where do you need to start? Who do you need to start with? And I know every week I get questions about how uncomfortable these messages are, and I'm okay with that. 
Where do you need to start? And who, who do you need to start with? And where do you need to move into the realm that Jesus says, this is where it starts to happen for you. And if you're bored in your faith, this may be the next step for you, where you move to the place where you have some uncomfortable people. And this, it's not just some kind of condescending relationship. I'm inviting them into my home and I'm going into their home. And we do not see anything the same way. And we do not have the same politics. And we're very different in terms of our background. But this is the essence of following Jesus. Let let me ask you this question. For some of you, this is where it's at. Who do you need to forgive? And for some, it's not a person. It's like a whole group of people. Who do you need to forgive? Where where do you maybe need to reconcile? Like there's something you need to do as much as you can, and it may be 90, 10, 10% it's your fault, but you need to reconcile. You need to move in their direction. Where, Where do you need to forgive? Where do you need to reconcile? And maybe this is the thing for some of us. Where do we need to repent? of our self-righteousness that has constructed walls and has put up barriers to the people that Jesus is actually leading us and calling us to seek out. The self-righteousness that honestly I think has put the church in our generation unnecessarily at odds with culture. And so I love what Paul says. Paul, who comes along, and he's a Jewish guy, and he's, he's trying to develop relationships with non-Jewish people, meaning they were nothing like him, did not believe anything that he had, had a completely different lifestyle. And, and Paul's like, I, I want to I move into relationship with them, not just so they can come to know Jesus, though I want that to happen. I, I just I want to interact with them because that's what God has called me to. And here's how he did it. I love these words. Paul says this. Last verses I want to read. He says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew. To win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one who's under the law, though I myself am not under the law. So as, result, end game, so as to win those under the law. And then he says this. Though I am free and belong to no man, I have made myself a slave, meaning I give up what I deserve. I give up intentionally what maybe is important to me, but I put others ahead of me. I give up being right sometimes. And I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. What does it look like to win? Have you ever won a contract? Have you ever won a business deal? Have you ever won somebody over in relationship? Like, how does that happen? You cannot coerce them there. You cannot argue them there. It requires for you at some level to put yourself second and to put them first. And Paul's like, this is the way forward. You need to be authentic. You need to be who you are. But you've got to meet people where they are. You need to never give up influence in relationship unnecessarily. I love that you're passionate about politics. Introducing people to hope and life in Jesus is more important than the way you vote. You being right, that is not as important as winning people in relationship and connecting them to Jesus. And Paul's like, this is the way forward. And by the way, if you're a follower of Jesus, this should be as easy for us as it is for anybody. We should lead culture forward. We should be able to say like Paul, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. You want to know what it looks like to confront racial reconciliation and all the differences and the problems we have? Well, here's what we believe. 
We believe that every single individual you are eyeball to eyeball with is in the Imago Dei, made in the image of God. And when we sit down at the table, I don't care what your background looks like. You are somebody for whom Jesus died, and I am somebody for whom Jesus died. And that tears away every barrier and every obstacle and every distance and moves us to a place to interact with people nothing like us because they're really a lot like us and they need the hope that Jesus has, which we need as well. And then last thing, and and I want to land this. I think winning just means this. It means that in any environment that we move into, in any individual relationship, here's, I think, the litmus test, and maybe this is what you need to take away from you. It means that when people walk away from your presence, they should feel better about themselves and not about you. That it's not about us. I think for a lot of us, if I can just really speak honestly, there's still, as adults, like grown men and grown women, there's still a middle school girl inside of a lot of us that needs to be rooted out. Like where we need to press into our worth and our identity in Christ, where we get in interactions with people. And it's all about what our home looks or how we dress or our image or how they're going to perceive us. And we're very guarded and we have trouble being vulnerable sometimes. And we make people feel stupid when they walk away from us. And and there's all of these things that are going on. And I'm telling you, what Paul means is I want you to give up yourself. How you dress and how you look and your image and whether they think you're funny or you're cool or how your house looks, that is second secondary to the fact that you are staring at somebody made in the image of God and the litmus test for all of us starting within this gathering and then moving into our communities is we should pray and ask God to help us to get rid of ourselves and move into a relationship where when somebody walks away from me it is a life-giving interaction it is something that replenishes them and they walk away feeling better about themselves than they do about me because it's not about me and I want to win as many people as possible. So real quick, as we, we end this out, I just want to give you a, a couple things. What's the next step to begin to really love your neighbor? And what does it mean to win your neighbor over in an authentic way where a genuine relationship, and I'm going to love you whether you ever believe what I believe because you're made in the image of God. But what does it look like? The first thing I would say is just do something. Just do something. Like this is as simple and as crazy as go bake some stuff, get some food is the thing that brings people together and begin to interact with some of your neighbors. That sounds a little, leave it to beaver, but I'm telling you, like it opens up doors. My wife has done this for years and we have developed so many relationships with our neighbors. We have somebody who attends our church that the first time we did this with her, she threw um, all of them away because she didn't know if they were laced with something and she didn't know um, us very well. So I don't know if we look like the people who would make pot pot brownies and give it to our neighbors, but that's kind of what she thought. But it's opened up a ton of doors. So just do something. And many times it's around sports. So whether it's tennis or golf, find a way you can interact with people. And I know it's going to take you out of your comfort zone. And I know you're busy. A few weeks ago, a lady across the street asked my wife, because her husband wouldn't play tennis with her, was like, hey, would you, would you play tennis with me? And so my wife agreed, and so she came back all excited. And I'm like, babe, you don't play tennis. <laughs> like, you've never played tennis in your life. So the night before, I'm trying to even go over the scoring. If you've ever played tennis, that it goes 15, 30, 40, you know, then it's, it's deuces and add in. Add. She had no idea. And so I'm not suggesting that. Maybe you should know how to play the sport. But... God opened up doors, and, uh, and also our neighbor actually offered for free tennis lessons to her because it was that bad, I guess. But just do something. People are watching the same sports as you. It's March Madness. They're 100 yards away. What if you invited them into your home? Just do something. The, the second thing is take advantage of, excuse me, of the opportunities that, that are in front of you. 
This goes back to last week is be interruptible. And I'm saying that out of my own weakness because I struggle with that so much. But where you see people not as inconveniences, but you see your neighbors and see those interruptions as opportunities to love them. And as you begin to do that, and I think begin to pray the prayer of every day, God, just, just use me. That's, what, that's a part of walking by the Spirit where God is going to do some things and you're going to start seeing what you're looking for. A few months ago, a neighbor came up out of nowhere into my driveway. We were talking, first time we had met, and he needed some mulch and blah, whatever, didn't have a truck. And so out of nowhere, it just kind of reflex, like, oh, I'm going to Walmart, come with me. And then I immediately regretted it because I'm, I'm kind of introverted, believe it or not. I'm like, I don't know this guy. I don't know what I'm going to say to this guy. But it was incredible, and it opened up a door to a relationship just because I was interruptible in that moment, which many times, honestly, I'm not. So just take advantage of the opportunities that are in front of you. Remember I was telling you at the beginning about that guy that I just wanted to strangle in our neighborhood. Is after, the while, after a while, God just began to kind of work in us. And we knew we needed to reach out to this guy. And it was very clear for obvious reasons. Um, he had no friends whatsoever. And so my wife began to, she made a thing where she would go to the community pool. And um, one, because she wanted to, but two, because it was a great way to just meet people in our community. And so we want to be intentional. We believe that our neighborhood is our mission field. And we've seen God do as much or more there than he's done in a church context. And so she just began to do that. And we started having conversations with him. And I decided not to bring up the car. And it was very, very hard. And we just, we talked and we started to hear his story. He's got a a daughter doesn't talk to him. He's been single for a lot of years. He, he has no friends whatsoever. Honestly, was hated by most of the people in our neighborhood complex. And so we just, just started trying to befriend him. We'd go by his house and talk. We um, went over to his house at one point. We started inviting him to breakfast. And, and you know how it is when you start to hear somebody's story. In many cases, it makes it very difficult to hate them. Because all, you, all of a sudden you realize there's a context, there's some things behind this, there's some reasons that maybe they've moved in this direction. And now seven years later, and this isn't on us, but it's just cool what God's done. Every Christmas day we go to breakfast with him for the last seven years and have an incredible relationship with him. So I just want to encourage you, move out, do something, and take advantage of the opportunities you have. So we started week one, just pray, pray for your neighbors. Last week, we talked about, go back and listen to it, please. You just need to every day begin to rehearse God's reckless love for you because that is the only fuel for you ever being able to love God or love the people that God loves. And then I just want to encourage you today is, is to step out and take a next step, and we're being real specific. In the next two weeks, do something around the table, whatever around the table looks like for you. Have somebody over and grill out. I mean, meat is one of the things that brings people together and tears down walls. It's God's common grace. If you're a vegan, I'm sorry. But I mean, it's one of those things that ignite worship, sex and meat. It's God's good gifts. Um, March 19th, like, but just find a way to make a connection. Do Seriously, do coffee, um, whatever it is. Reach out to your neighbor. For some of you, it means the hard work of, of you need to try to make some things right. But do something. And let's do this as a gathering. And, and I'm... I just want to end with this. Can, can you, I say this a lot, but can you imagine? Can you imagine if we began as a church, let's just start here with Centerpoint and the hundreds of people who attend. Can you imagine if we took this seriously? Can you imagine if we saw those people as somebody made in the image of God? Can you imagine if we began to develop deep, meaningful relationships with people who are absolutely nothing like us? Can you imagine what God might do? I'm telling you, can you imagine what would happen with some of the racial tension in our neighborhoods and cities? We might be part of the solution. Can you imagine what would happen in, in the lives of those people that you look at and how you begin to view them and how you begin to interact with them? 
Can you imagine what would happen in the growing number of non-affiliated religious people? They call them nuns in Western culture. And they have seen the church so off mission that there's hundreds of thousands in the West who would go, I I don't know if I'm hostile to God, but I don't even know what I believe. I don't even know what this is about. Can you imagine what would begin to happen if they saw the church on mission in this way? And we made politics second, and we made being right second, and we were willing to be uncomfortable, and we were willing to seek them out and move in their direction. Can you imagine what would happen? And I'm telling you, Jesus was so brilliant because he knew that this one thing had the power to change families and change neighborhoods and change cities. And at one point it did. It's why this little band of renegade nobodies made up of guys like Matthew began to take seriously the fact that they believed there was a resurrected Christ. There was nothing to fear, and there was no image that they needed to put on. And they believed that love one another the way God has loved us, it really was the way forward, and it began to change the world. It's why a guy like Stephen, one of the first church martyrs in the first century, it's why he prayed ridiculous prayers like this right before he's about to be crucified. He said, God, don't hold this against them. Because they got that from Jesus. And they knew that they were the body of Christ. Which meant what was true of Jesus personally should be true of us corporately. Can you imagine what would happen in our churches? I, don't, I, th- I think you think this is just me and my ideal. Can you imagine if we just began this and then other churches really began to come around us and we changed how we view spirituality and changed what God's called us to do in our community and took this seriously? Can you imagine what would happen? I'll tell you what would happen. People who are nothing like us would want to be around us. We would not be able to keep people out. We would see a tidal wave of God's grace and mercy move into our communities in ways that we could never imagine because God's love is most on display, not in those relationships where they're like us and they are all in the same categories and it's just this homogeneous, our tribe together for life. But when we move in the direction where there is a massive gap and it is that thing where we believe they're made in the image of God and there's somebody for whom Christ died. And so, man, we have have so much more alike than you would ever imagine and we go and love them i'm telling you that's the moment where jesus love becomes spectacular and that is the moment where this gospel becomes real and almost irresistible we need to get a little messy we need to redefine spirituality we need to stop sitting in rows and thinking that that's enough And we need to move into our communities and it is going to be uncomfortable and it will cost you And we need to love like Jesus. And so Jesus says to all of us, and he says to me, and and I'm with you. I want to take the baby steps because I have a long way to go. Jesus says to all of us, follow me. Follow me. Do you know what you want to know what it means in terms of the essence of what it looks like to follow and love me? This is it. Follow me. So would you take a next step? All over the house, would you just pray with me? And if you're watching online, I want to invite you to do the same. If you're listening somewhere, I want you to engage in this wherever you are. Jesus, I thank you so much for your grace. I thank you so much for your love. I thank you so much for what we have been given. And I just pray, God, that you would begin to do something in our hearts. It's what we're praying, Lord, that there's something even in us. There's an angst that has developed in us even over these weeks where we believe that you're calling us to more and we believe that you have more from us. And Lord, in a way that is 
laced with humility. We want to lead the way. And we want to do this, and we want to take it seriously. I thank you for the stories, even over these weeks, of what you are leading people to do simply because of your grace. God, do your thing in us. And Lord, even as we walk out of here, give us the courage to take a next step and actually do what you're asking and calling us to do. And we pray this in Jesus' incredible name. Amen.